when you go home and you sit in the dark places in shame, I need you to understand that the only way you get free of that is if you invite Jesus and Jesus in the form of your brothers and sisters of Christ into that dark space. Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gap. You ever heard anybody say um, that phrase, uh, you know, my body is a temple? Right? And now there's there's obviously there's a origin in Christian doctrine and application, which is that we house the Holy Spirit when we come into relationship with Jesus, right? So we literally become the temple and he resides in us we are his dwelling place right and in that same way that he dwells in us we dwell in him but how often do we hear it and it's really actually just like sarcastic like it's the health nuts that won't drink a mountain dew because their body's a temple or my favorite really is gym bros (laughs) some of you feel attacked immediately you know, um, and the reason I bring that up is really this idea of going to the gym. You know, you, you sign up at the gym, you go and you get a membership and you, you know, you sign the contract and everybody at some point in their life has signed up for a gym they never went back to. Um, but when you go, you sign up at the gym and, and what doesn't happen when you sign up at the gym is that you immediately have met your all your goals. I mean, unless your goal was to sign up, maybe. But if you had goals that you know were the motivation to go sign up at the gym, you didn't walk in the door and sign the contract, say I'm gonna I'm gonna sign up for this subscription monthly, and boom, instantly I met my fitness goals. I'm just there. It happened, right? No, we understand that you have to you have to set goals, and you have to go to the gym and train. And it's only by quitting that you basically uh, establish that you won't meet your goal. It's quitting that makes sure that you never get there. Now, um, there is kind of a one of the problems we do, right, is we're never as far along as we want to be, right? We, we think day one, I, I want to be here. And maybe that's a day three goal. Maybe that's a day 300 goal. The point is, you have to set realistic goals for the day you're in and realistic goals that you're headed towards. We do this in our spiritual life. See, sin, before you get saved, sin dwells in you and you in it. And day one of becoming a Christian, simply by making Jesus your Lord, signing the contract, it doesn't immediately make you the spiritual being that you are supposed to be someday. You don't just go, well, now I'm a Christian, so everything I want to be spiritually, the level of perfection that I'm supposed to attain, that God promises I will attain, it's here now. It immediately starts. right? And what we see is that We have to be about training 
instead of trying to deal with our sin? Because what happens is we know we're not supposed to sin. And so day one, day two, day three, wherever we are, we mess up and we immediately quit. We're like, well, I can't do it. I can't handle it. And it's just like that gym membership didn't do anything for you unless you kept on training, unless you continued to work at it. The thing about becoming a Christian is that the Bible has this, uh, this doctrine we describe it as the already not yet doctrine. So when you get saved, you are already saved. But not yet, because salvation happens on the last day. That's the day that you're saved from going to hell. So you are already saved, but not yet. When Jesus, when God looks down at you from heaven, He sees that you are already perfect, covered by the blood, but not yet perfected. Does this make sense? There is this reality where it is so certain, it is so promised, that it has happened. It's as good as done, and yet, it hasn't happened yet. And the problem is, we're always focusing in the wrong place. We need to look at the mess up in the day, the not yet portion, and be able to see what God sees, which is the already done, promised, settled, in the distance. And we focus too much on trying to be perfect right here, right now, instead of training to be perfect for the day that it will be completed. You are already in the process of being sanctified, but you are not yet glorified in the perfection that you will one day have in heaven with Jesus. And the only way that you show yourself to not even be going the right direction, not even be on the road of sanctification, is by quitting. Last week, Paul, he said that you're not obligated to the letter of the law. And when we discussed what that meant, we said that Paul was saying, you are no longer contractually obligated to the only thing the law actually does, which is accuse you and make you guilty. It shows you to be guilty. That's the only thing the law does. He says you are no longer obligated to the letter of the law, but you are now obligated to live in the newness of spirit. In James chapter 1, verse 27, it says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. And then in James 2.8, he says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. What we see in scripture is that the spirit of the law, the intent, by the way, the whole time, was to show us how to love other people. The whole law is summed up in that statement. That is the spirit of the law. Now, this is really important context for today. Because Paul is going to spend the rest of chapter 7 saying how he cannot do the good, but he continues to do the bad. And it's important as we go through that, that we realize he is talking about sin, but he's talking about sin in the context of what it means to love others or love yourself. That is what he's referring to. And by the way, this is the way that God 
judges all of our actions. See, we have this nuanced morality system. It's like, well, I, you know, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And I'm better than this person. Or, you know, that person, I look up to them, they're better than me. That's our nuance. You know what God sees? People who are leading people to Him and people who are leading people away from Him. That is what it means to be good in God's sight. To be, to be a believer is to essentially become a beacon for the name of Jesus Christ, actually at an involuntary level and, and, and hopefully at a very voluntary level. But you, if you are truly a Christian, even your struggles, even your failures, God is using to point people towards Him. Praise God indeed. So the first thing we're going to talk about is sin using you as a dwelling place. So I, I say this phrase a lot. I say that unbelievers can't do good or they can't truly love other people. And the reason for this, and I, I want to I want to say this again, because I want to make sure that we're on the same page as I talk. Because what happens is we look at unbelievers and we see them doing good things. If an, if an unbeliever gives to charity, that's inherently in our mind a good thing. right? But I'm using a very specific def- definition. Good is only good insofar as it points people to Jesus Christ. You can't point people to Jesus Christ if you've never met Jesus Christ. Okay, now, does that mean that God doesn't undermine literally every every self-serving or every sinful action in all of creation to still point back to Him? He does, because He's so powerful and He's so sovereign. He's even using evil people's evil actions to point to the reality of who He is. He's even doing that. But that person is only credited with good and righteous acts insofar as those good and righteous acts were for the purpose of pointing people to Jesus. So when I say non-Christians can't do good things and non-Christians can't love other people, I'm not talking about the level at which most parents love their kids, whether they're Christians or not. I'm talking about whether or not those parents are leading their kids to know the name of Jesus Christ. It's a very different standard for what good or or righteous behavior is. Look with me at Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, sold into bondage to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, for I am not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. However, if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law that the law is good. If you've ever read through this passage before, uh, if you read just 14 to 25, or 14 really to 23, um, it's kind of a confusing passage. Um, it is the most convoluted thought I think Paul has in all of the, uh, in all of his writings, and yet, it brings us some of the most comfort we can ever find in any of Paul's writings. Why? Because it describes this eternal battle where we feel like we can never win against our sin. And yet, when you finally get to verse 24 and 25, and we'll see, he answers the question that deep down the struggle is trying to get us to in the first place. Who will save me? 
So when we look at these first verses, the premise is that my flesh can't do the divine thing God has given me to do. The divine thing. What, is that, what do I mean by that? The law in the context of loving other people, which is to point people to Jesus. Here's the reality. So many of my actions do not serve to point people to Jesus. When I sin, it's not the individual sin that God is dissecting and, and I should be repenting of. It's that that sin is inhibiting the gospel from being spread by me, through me, with me as a tool. The goal of righteousness is not that I have some kind of warm, fuzzy feeling where I don't feel my sin. Here's the reality. Until the last day, your sin is still dwelling in your flesh. So if you're looking for this perpetual, warm, fuzzy, I haven't sinned recently feeling, it's a lie. The sin is still in you. What you should be looking for is that your sin is not inhibiting the gospel. That you are a beacon of the gospel to everyone you talk to, to everyone you run into. And even the sin that is in the privacy of your own home, it affects your spirit's ability to present the gospel to other people. Now, the good news is that for believers... God is using the sin, even the sin in the privacy of our own home, to refine us to be even brighter beacons for his name. And what Paul is going to talk through here is that that stress feeling when we wrestle with our sin to inevitably fail over and over and over again our entire life. Look at verse, uh, at verse 17. But now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. We can't love people correctly. And then when we fail in loving people correctly, it bothers us. It causes us to feel shame and guilt. And it is exactly this shame, this feeling of guilt we feel about sin that I need you to understand is actually an assurance of your salvation. Hear me out on this. In 1 John, in chapter 1, verse 8, He says, if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. We're self-deceived. Okay, let's talk about this. I always describe it, picture this is is my flesh and this is my spirit. In a believer, these two things are butting heads. They're waging war. In a non-believer, this is gone. So when I am a non-believer, my sin runs rampant. It doesn't butt heads against anything. The only thing that my sin ever comes into contact with is things external to me, such as the law. The God's letter of the law that is condemning this sin that is running rampant in my flesh. When I become a believer, suddenly I feel conviction in a very different way because my spirit that has been brought to life is now fighting back. 
When you feel the tension of your spirit versus your flesh, that is testifying to you that your spirit is alive. That it is working inside of you to fight against your flesh, and that in and of itself is only true in believers. Suddenly, some of the angst and stress I feel over my sin is actually producing a confidence that I am with the Holy Spirit, that He has a presence in me, and that He is changing things about me. See, the world is all about being self-loving. Think about this. Even loving other people in the world is to affirm their self-love. That's all we're doing, right? How do Christians love people? We go to people and we say, no, you need to love Him. You need to love the Lord, right? The world is constantly telling you, you need to love you. Here's the thing. Jesus loves you more than you ever will. That's the truth. And if you will love Him with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, and let Him love you the way that He loves, it will fulfill you in a way that your own love for you can never do. When the world encounters the law, they have shame, which is to say, I am something evil. They have remorse, which is mostly just regret of being caught or regret of dealing with consequences. And then, in a lot of cases, they have defiance. The way the world lashes out at their shame feeling demonstrates to you a lack of humility, a lack of submission, a lack of Jesus as Lord. In Christians' lives, we don't feel shame, we feel guilt. Shame is I am something bad. Guilt is I did something bad. I am guilty of that bad thing. And the beautiful thing about the gospel, right, is that it took the guilt away. So we experience guilt, and then instead of remorse, which is just being upset that I'm feeling the consequences, we experience repentance, which is that I'm sorry. And, and this is where I want to hone you guys in on this. Not I'm sorry I did the action. I'm sorry that I hindered the gospel. I'm sorry that I did something that hurt my Savior who loves me and saved me. And I'm sorry in a way that then submits to Him. Doesn't justify it. Doesn't work a way around it to try to make everyone else tell me why it's actually good, which is all the world's doing all the time. But instead says, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be who I once was where sin can dwell in me. Okay, so here's the question. As we work through this, if we want to not sin and we don't want to sin, and yet we do what we don't want and we don't do what we want, why do we still do it? That's the question. That is the buildup that Paul is getting to right here. And it's because... The sin is not done dwelling in part of you. It is not done being attached to part of you. And actually, think about it like this. The struggle of your spirit and your flesh is a testimony to people who don't have the other half. And when they look at the way that you struggle with your sin, and that's not how they respond or even think through it, it in and of itself points them to Jesus. 
That's just the passive effect. Now, wait for them to go, what, why do you think about it like that? Why do you do the things you do? What, what do you have that I don't have? Now it's not passive. Now you have a chance to speak gospel truth into your non-believing friend, to tell them, because I have awoken my spirit, because God has dwelled in me and is fighting back against the sin that dwells in my flesh. So let's put it like this. I have been telling you guys for weeks that you can't choose your sin. You can't live in your sin actively. Make that choice to, to be in that way, right? Because that inherently shows that you're not a believer, right? If you, if you are rejecting Jesus in your lifestyle uh, on purpose for a long period of time. And, and by the way, uh, just to clarify as I say all that, there is... We talked about the difference between the subjective and the objective. If you are, if at some point the objective truth that you got saved happened, and the subjective truth now in the in the moment to moment your day to day does not match that, that is designed on purpose as a pain response. God wants to bring you back to where your subjective reality day to day matches your objective reality, your your eternity that's been sealed with Him. You can never change that objective truth that you have been saved. The reason that God doesn't say just think about that prayer you prayed when you're seven, is because we would resort to that and continue in sin, right? So those that system is designed to keep us safe from sin because sin hurts us, right? So here's how I want you to think about this. How do I know the difference between I just can't stop sinning because sin dwells in me and I'm choosing my sin? So here's my thought. Here's the, the analogy I want you to think through. Picture a cowardly soldier versus a wicked soldier. Think through these two people in battle. A cowardly soldier is a bad soldier. He is inherently self-loving, but he may want to do good. He may want to be braver. He may wish that he had what it took to not be cowardly. But ultimately, he either doesn't trust the authorities above him or he doesn't trust his training he, something, there's a lack of something in him that is instead producing this self-preservation. Now compare that to the wicked soldier. The wicked soldier is actively on the other team. The cowardly soldier is a bad soldier, but the wicked soldier is a traitor. He's fighting for the enemy. He's malicious. He's self-loving. He wants to do evil. And he doesn't even have any training. See, in the Christian life, it's hard to live up to this standard. I mean, what's the standard, right? What's the standard of being a Christian? Jesus' life. You know when you'll attain that? Like when you will be the same, the same level of perfection that Jesus was his entire life on earth? On the last day, when you are made perfect by your Father. Okay, so what do you do until then? You just keep training, right? But there's a difference in your spirit between the fact that you are weak and struggling and if you are actively on the other side. If you are actively fighting against the team you say you're on. That's the difference. Sin for believers manifests something we don't trust about God. Think about it like this. If I don't trust that God is a provider, I will steal. If I don't trust that God has a, a plan for me to uh, get through school, 
I'll cheat. If I don't trust that, um, if I don't trust that God wants to protect me, I won't share the gospel with that person that may lash out. Right? Sin is a manifestation of something we doubt about God. Oftentimes I've found in my life that one of the most effective things I can do to fight the sin that dwells in me is tell myself who God really is. Think about it. If you are, a, a, like stealing's the easy example. It's the easiest one to look through. So say you are about to steal something. If you sat there and reminded yourself that God is the provider, that He is always providing, then you would have to, in that moment, either trust that reality or actively go against it. You would have to either rebel against what you have been told is true about God, or you would believe on it. And if you believed on it, you wouldn't steal. You see what I'm saying? You have to remind yourself who God is because that fights the sin that is dwelling in you, that is causing you not to trust the Lord. Sin remains in you and it wages war on you. See, sin's doing is that it is waging a war against you. Um, I obviously was in the military during the time of our, you know, the last 10 to 20 years that we were in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? So one of the things that we talked about a lot, the things that we studied and I got trained on was insurgents, right? Because it wasn't, you know, the wars of World War II where everyone on both sides is wearing a uniform and, and there's massive armies meeting in fields and, and battling each other, right? It was much more um, groups of people wearing civilian clothes and hiding among their populace and just attacking where you were vulnerable and then trying to disappear. Sin, when you become a Christian, sin is waging an insurgent war inside of your body. Right? It's no longer the dominant force. It no longer holds the, the, the Capitol building. It's not the government. It is just still running around in there trying to wreak havoc. Now, there was this reality in Afghanistan that was always being argued about, and it was the difference between a technique that involved, uh, it was much like Vietnam, which involved staying on these uh, forward operating bases behind walls and going out and conducting operations and then coming back, right? There was a difference between that mentality and, and people who said what we should be doing is we should be going out amongst the people all the time because that's what the insurgents are doing and, and building the trust and the, the respect, the mutual respect in the working environment with them instead of doing that for so many hours a day and then giving the rest of that time to the enemy who's then either terrorizing them or bribing them or, uh, or building that respect and that rapport. Here's my question. In your spirit, are you so afraid of the sin that's waging war inside of you that you're hiding behind the, the deepest cavern wall and just going, well, it can't get to me in here and letting it run rampant? Or are you going out and training? See, because if we had gone out and trained people to fight insurgents, we would have been stronger as a whole against them. You can either recede all the way to your inner man and just go, well, I don't want to do this sin. Or... You can constantly be waging the war, believing that your spirit has been given the power 
to go out and train the members of your body to continually fight against your sin. You're going to lose plenty. But you will begin to see progress in the opposite direction. You will begin to live out your sanctification. Look at verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person. That's that inner wall. I genuinely and joyfully want to do things God's way. Right? To what? Point people to Jesus. Again, only a believer wants that. Only a believer can do that. But I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, the law which is in my body parts. This insurgency that's waging war inside of you should not be causing you to be crippled in the cause for Christ. Here's the reality. Some of you are going home every day and being pinned down by something that you're embarrassed and ashamed about that has no power anymore. You are giving it the power it has. The Bible tells us to shed light on our sin, to wage war against it. Think about this. What defeats Darkness. Light. Light defeats darkness. You, I want to be careful how I say this. You are not going to stop failing. You are not going to stop sinning. But you are going to identify here with Paul in this reality where when you fail, you know that's not you. You are free from that. That has no hold over you. It doesn't get to condemn you. It doesn't get to accuse you. It doesn't get to shame you. You will begin to see your sin as something separate, tagging along in the parts of your body that you just can't get rid of yet. And you will repent, not because you want the warm fuzzy feeling or you're embarrassed by the act. You will repent because you so desperately want to be a beacon of the gospel because you so desperately want to share in the relationship that you have with Jesus. That is how you know that you are growing in Christ's likeness. That is what Paul's talking about right here. Paul is not walking around with his head hung low because he can't beat this stupid sin and he's embarrassed about it. He hasn't told anybody. No, Paul is looking at his sin and saying, that's not even me anymore. When that happens... It's not even what I want to do. I don't even identify with it. It's alien to me. He's almost having an out-of-body experience or an in-spirit experience. He is looking at his sin and he's like, this, this is something different. This is something waging war against me, not something I'm a part of. That is what we should all be growing toward. What defeats darkness? Light. Look at verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Paul asked the question that all of Romans has been establishing up to this point. Who 
will save me. Who will save me? And I want you to see this. He's not exaggerating when he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Listen, I told you guys, I think it was last week, that if you were ever to see fully your sin, the full capacity and weight of it, it would you, you wouldn't be able to bear it. You wouldn't be able to, to stand with the weight of it. It is the grace of God that we often don't see our sin as fully as it really is. We live in a culture that is constantly trying to distract you, to entertain you, to keep you external, outward. Go sit. Go sit in the silence. Let yourself turn inward. Meditate for a moment on who you are and what God has saved you from. It will be uncomfortable. It will be emotional. You will feel everything inside of you screaming to pick up your phone or turn on your television or text a friend because your body doesn't want you to see who you are and the weight of who Jesus of what Jesus had to save you from. I think it was Billy Graham was on a late night show one time and the late night host said, my problem with that, that song, Amazing Grace, is I'm not, I'm not wretched. And Billy Graham said, compared to who? Because if you compare who you are to Jesus, we are all wretched. And it is the grace of God that saves us from that. This is not a despair. This is not a hopelessness, but it is a distress. It should be distressing to you to grasp the reality of what you needed to be saved from. And then we get to the best part. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. I want you to see this. He says, praise God, Jesus is who will save me from this body of death. Jesus is who will lift the weight of my sin off of me. He says, so that in my mind or my soul, I will serve the law of God. I will love others even though my flesh is still under attack. Even though my flesh continues to fail, I, in who I am, in my inner man, recognizing that Jesus has saved me, will serve Him. Second Corinthians 5. 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. I need you to understand this. If you are in Christ, you are not enslaved to your sin. It doesn't get to choke you. It doesn't get to shame you. It doesn't get to hold you down. Because the old things about you, they have already passed away even though it looks like not yet and new things have come a new spirit that wages that war back against your flesh that fights for loving God and loving others and believing means that you will 
act on that. It means that you will act in that reality. What does it mean to walk in the light? I'll tell you this. I, I, I can look around this room. I mean, I could, I could point to people and have you stand up because there are so many people in this room who have discovered living in the light means telling other people about your sin. Because as soon as somebody else knows, it can't hook you. It can't shame you. It can't tell you the lie that you're the only one. It can't tell you the lie that you're something bad. As soon as you bring it out, listen, you can't hope to blackmail me. If you find out the worst things I've ever done, bad news for you, I've already told everybody. Everybody knows all of my dirty secrets. I don't have skeletons in the closet because I dragged them out for dinner. Okay? The reality is when you live in the light, you are free. When you go home and you sit in the dark places in shame, I need you to understand that the only way you get free of that is if you invite Jesus and Jesus in the form of your brothers and sisters in Christ into that dark space. Because when we come in, we come in with flashlights and and torches, and we're casting light on everything, right? And and is that painful? Is it a little embarrassing? Yeah, absolutely it is. And it's so free. It is a freedom that you would never trade for that embarrassment. And by the way, let's talk about let's talk about embarrassment for a second. The Bible says that God gives grace to the humble, and being humble is rooted in being humiliated. It's it's pride is doing everything you can to not be humiliated. It's saying, I'd rather not be embarrassed and I'd rather hold on to this sin and be stuck in it because then nobody has to know. But if you will be humiliated in it, shed light on it, show everybody it, then you can be free from it. Jesus has already paid the penalty. So if he's already paid the penalty, why would you want to just keep suffering in it? Sin is defeated. And my question for you is, do you believe that? I'm going to ask one more question today. What if our relationship with Jesus was actually the way we treat him? We often treat Jesus as a gas station fill-up when we're low. Do you, do you sometimes feel, when you go to pray, guilty, that you are using Jesus? You might be. Now the good news is, He's not holding out against you. But the reality is, Jesus is not just there for the moments that your tank is low. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to be in this every step of the way. Listen, my highs are higher because I'm with Jesus, and my lows are are easier to get through because I'm with Jesus. I don't have to go find him when I'm in my lows because I descended from the mountaintop into the valley following him there. If you will do this journey with Jesus, sin, it won't stop dwelling in you. It won't stop doing, uh, uh, declaring a war on you, but it is defeated. And if you will walk with Christ in what it really looks like, what it really means, you will see that victory.
And do you not, do you not know, like, is it just that, like, you show up here every week and you sit in these chairs and you don't know what that looks like? Okay, fine. There are people in this room who know what that looks like. Ask. Don't come in here and walk back out and not even have a conversation with anybody. Find somebody who knows more than you about this book and ask them. And if they don't have the answer, ask somebody else. Keep asking. Like, why? I just don't understand why you want to walk around with unanswered questions about this stuff. This is all that matters. Find the answers. And I promise you they're in here. Guys, this, this passage, it, it is so comforting because you can read through it one time and immediately identify with the whole thing. Like, yeah, why do I do all the things I don't want to do? And I don't do anything I want to do. It's like this weird commiserating feeling you get with Paul. All of a sudden you're just like, he gets me. <laughs> and the reality is that is all of us. That's why you're all in this room is to all be available to get each other, to push each other towards Christ's likeness, to work this out together. Guaranteed there's somebody in this room more spiritually mature than you. And guaranteed, there's somebody in this room who needs you because you're more spiritually mature than them. Start figuring out who that is. And on that note, I, I want to reiterate something that Philip said. I know a lot of you are in this room because you have found something here. Now, I don't mean, I don't mean reach, reach college. I just mean that you found biblical truth. Who do you know that needs that? Who are you working with, going to school with? sitting next to that needs Jesus, that needs to find biblical truth. And I don't care if you I don't care if they come to this class. I don't even care if they come to Evergreen. Why are you not telling them about Jesus? Why are you not inviting them to church? Why are you not inviting them to, yes, this class, Reach Tuesday nights, Sunday morning service, any other church ever? Like, if you know people who need Jesus, if your life has been changed by Him, how can you just keep that to yourself? This, this message, I want you guys this week reread just these verses and see that, that this is not just Paul commiserating with you. This is him saying, I'm no longer pinned down by this sin that dwells in my flesh. And then when you believe on that, act Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.